This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, season three, East Coast edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio/about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. Thanks so much for listening. All right, on today's episode of Beyond the Studio podcast, we're excited to be speaking with Marcus Maddox, a photographer working in Philadelphia and New York City. His work is characterized by a natural tone, guided by intuition and empathy. He became interested in photography while growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, getting his start by observing local musicians. Drawn towards the personal, Maddox sets out to capture the human condition in a meaningful and cinematic way. His work has appeared in select publications, including American Trordata, Atmos Magazine, Time, Interview Magazine, Wire Mag, Crack Magazine, The Fader, New Yorker, Pitchfork, Philadelphia Magazine, New York Magazine, and The New York Times. His work has also been collected by the Whitney Museum of American Art and the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and his work has been exhibited in the United States and internationally. That's a really impressive bio for such a young artist, and Marcus, we're excited to talk with you a little more about your journey, so thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to talk to you. I think I saw your work maybe first on Boom, and I was like, wow, these are beautiful paintings, and then I was like, wait, (laughs) these aren't paintings. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your creative background and kind of what got you into photography and your like creative journey thus far. Yeah, so I um, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and I grew up around a lot of musicians. Um, so that was pretty much my introduction to art is being around all of these musicians growing up in Nashville. Um, I went to college at MTSU in Murfreesboro, and a lot of my close friends played guitar, they would sing, uh, they'd play at bars. Um, And at the time, I didn't really do anything creative. I felt that I was a pretty expressive person, but I didn't really have something to express myself. And after uh, enough gatherings uh, with my friends and just watching them play music, uh, I felt like I needed a tool in, in order to, to fit in. And so I, I felt that uh, the camera uh, would be the best instrument for me because I was just always watching them play music and, uh, you know, like practice in basements and record records and things like that. So the camera became my tool for expression. And that's really what got me into it seriously was uh, around uh, around when I was like 20, 21 years old. 
um, I started taking photography seriously by taking pictures of my friends. Uh, I, I became a music photographer first. So I'd go to concerts, I'd uh, photograph them playing, practicing, passing the guitar around at parties. And so that was my, my entry into photography. And then from there, I, I branched out into uh, more fashion. I did a, an internship for Vogue in 2016. And uh, it was Vogue Australia. Um, we did a shoot in Nashville for that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I messed around with, with fashion and things like that. I, um, I started the series, uh, The Figures of Color, the series that is pretty painterly. Um, and th- thank you for saying that, by the way. I, I think that that's funny. A lot of people confuse those images as paintings. And I, I think that that's, that's really interesting because uh, I, I was inspired by a lot of different painters for that series. Yeah, I feel like they they hold such a really beautiful quality of light and texture. It seems like they're such tangible pieces of work, which is probably why it gave me the like painterly vibe. Um, but yeah, it's they're so beautiful. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I started working on that series in uh, 2016, and I've been working on it ever since. What got me started with that work was my friend... Zachary Gray, who's based in Los Angeles right now, at the time he lived in Nashville and he was going to create a a book of his favorite work from different local artists in Nashville who are all photographers. You know, Zachary Gray is older than me and I've always looked up to him. So I wanted to do something impressive for this new zine. Uh, that he was making. And I, I wanted to impress my colleagues too. So I decided to try to do something that went a little bit beyond photography. I wanted to get inspired by something that, uh, you know, didn't really have that much to do with the field of photography at all. So I started looking at contemporary painters and uh, looking for ways to make an image that wasn't the typical like documentary photograph- uh, uh, photograph. So I started looking at artists like Carrie James Marshall and um, Alex Gardner was a big one for me. Later on, I discovered the painter John Key, who's based in New York. And uh, they were creating these figurative works that were really inspiring and really stark. Like they used a stark black figure that really stood out to me. And I wanted to find a way to translate that into photography and to, to pose people in a regal way that delivers that sort of impact, uh, but in a different medium. So um, I got together with some friends. We, we went to my friend's house in Antioch, Tennessee, and I did a shoot. The first shoot was at like the end of 2016, and I, I edited those photos and shared the, the final edits of those photographs in uh, early 2017. And uh, one of those images was All the Pain, All the Tears, uh, which is that image of uh, two people letting go of each other's hands, and it's uh, against a, a like a teal background with a with a pink gold couch. A lot of people talk to me about that image, and um, it's interesting how you know early work can be you know there, there's something about early naive works, something that comes straight from the heart, straight from the soul. And I really didn't know what I was doing. I was really scared, honestly. I didn't know if I was doing like a performance bit or something, trying to mimic these paintings. But I tried my best to make it like the work that I was inspired by, but still unique 
to my own style and unique to my own vision. And I, I really tried to make something personal out of it. So that's really how that series came about is, uh, you know, just, just trying to do something new and experiment. Yeah. Did you feel like you'd been kind of building up to this work in other ways? Or did the series feel like a real departure from some of the music photography that you'd been doing? I'm curious about that shift in like, when did you feel like you were starting to develop your own voice from first starting to take photographs of friends to starting to do some of these more personally driven projects? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So I, I really think that Figures of Color is a large departure away from my music photography. It, it's really a completely different style and a completely different approach. Uh, with my music photography, um, I'm more interested in getting candid shots and being a fly on the wall and just really getting like a slice of life. Like most like 20th century photographers that I admire from like Magnum and, you know, different collectives who would use those 35 millimeter Leicas to, to get stuff on the street. I tried to apply that sort of style to my music photography. Uh, and I mainly focused on the, on the crowd when I was shooting concerts uh, in Nashville and now in Philadelphia. But Figures of Color is something different. It's, uh, it's more fine art. It's more like studio-esque. Uh, everything is set up for figures of color. I really feel like I'm drawing with my subjects because uh, the placement is very rigorous and the editing is very rigorous. So it seems it seems very crafted. At some points, it doesn't really feel that much like photography at all because I'm I'm setting up so much stuff and you know pinning up fabric on the wall, being really specific and intentional about the the color palettes. And then on top of that, uh, I do a lot of post-production in Photoshop and Lightroom. Those images are, are imagined. You know, I, I just sort of, I, I dream them up and, and make them come to life. And it's not really uh, as grounded in reality as uh, some of my more documentary work and in, in my music photography. Yeah, it's interesting how you came from this um, background of shooting performances. And it sounds like some of the, these personal projects, like the staging and the setup for them is almost kind of performative, like you're creating your own environments for the work to exist in. Yeah, yeah. I create these environments with the fabric. And part of that is trying to evoke the feelings that I get from hard edge paintings. I've, I've looked to uh, different 20th century painters from the hard edge movement, and I try to get the set to feel like that kind of work. Similar to like Ellsworth Kelly, I, I looked at Mark Rothko a lot. Just playing with shapes and, and tone and scale too. Uh, and just trying to piece that all together into a, a uniquely personal figurative image. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of tinkering. At times I feel like it's, it's a practice that, at times I wanna take a break from it and focus more on documentary work to feel more like I'm, I'm capturing reality. Because with Figures of Color specifically, that series, it kind of takes a lot out of me. It, it, it makes me feel like like I'm making something that's a, a little bit abstract. And I, I, I definitely want to go more in a direction that's uh, grounded in reality and, and more and leaning more towards photography. 
uh, instead of the um, the painterly style. Uh, but but I can appreciate both approaches though. I feel like it makes the medium and the output of the medium all the richer is to uh, you know practice these two different styles, these two different approaches. Because uh, I feel like I have multitudes. I have different sides of me, and I feel like it's definitely important to communicate my different perspectives of the world. Yeah, I'm curious if art was a big part of your life growing up. Um, like, where did this exposure to painting and other forms of art making come from? Was that something that um, originated in Nashville? Or were you, like, going out to museums and seeing work in person? Like, where did some of these influences start to come into your life? Yeah, you know, I used to draw as a kid. And I know that my dad used to draw and paint as well. And I was really, oh, wow. yeah, I was really impressed with my dad's work actually, um, when I was living his, in his apartment, I would always see this painting on the wall of a, of a skier. There was like a, a skier in the snow and it was, it was pretty abstract and it was like really well done and it came in this golden frame. And I had seen this painting on the wall since I was maybe like three or four years old. And I was always impressed by it. Uh, and then one day when I was in middle school, when I was much older, uh, I asked my dad, I was like, uh, who, who made that painting? Like, that, that, that's a really cool painting. And he was like, I made that. And I was like, wow, you made that? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I, was, I was really taken back because he, he's not like really open about drawing and painting. And I think at some point in his adult life, he stopped drawing completely. So I never really would see him draw or paint. Uh, so when I found out that he made that painting that was in the gold frame on our wall, I thought that that was really impressive. Uh, so that's one of my earliest childhood memories of like really taking in artwork. And then from there, so I moved, in Phil I moved to Philadelphia three years ago in 2018. And I started going to the Philadelphia Museum of Art a lot. And uh, I started visiting the art department in the free library a lot as well. It's actually one of my favorite places in the city is the, the library. And there at the library, they have all of these monographs that you can look through and, you know, it's free to use. You can check them out. Uh, so I would spend hours when I first moved here, and I still do actually, going through these books and, you know, reading about different artists, photographers, painters, poets, too. I, I got into poetry after I moved to Philadelphia. And it's, it's such an enormous resource. I, I love the library so much because you can just go and you can take in so much work and it doesn't cost you anything. And it's never a waste of time. It's, it's always a good idea to go in there and check out a few books and, and you know, just to, to learn about different artists. I actually, so I went to college in like 2014, but I dropped out after a few years. So I, I've, I've never graduated college. I don't have a degree. And so the library has been a really great resource for me because it's helped me to stay curious. And even though I'm not uh, in the academic world officially uh, or have any like academic accolades, I still find myself being very curious with books and, you know, receiving knowledge, you know, through independent study. That, that's what's really kept me going all this time is, uh, is going to, the, to that art department and, uh, and keeping myself inspired and, and curious. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you more about your move uh, from Nashville to Philadelphia. Um, but first, I was curious to know more about how and when some of the first uh, professional opportunities started to come about for you through photography. You mentioned this internship with Vogue and uh, some of these projects that you were doing with other artists. And so I'm curious where, like, when did it start to feel like something that you could pursue as a career path? Or um, did you start to view photography as something that you might want to pursue long term? Yeah, so my first job, I'm trying to think back. So a lot of my early earliest paid work was doing press photos for musicians. So starting out as a music photographer, I would I would meet a lot of musicians and I started getting paid to make proto, uh, press photographs. Um, so whenever a, mu- uh, whenever a musician was featured in an article or anything, I would take the photographs for those articles. Um, and then I moved into album covers and, and single covers. Um, I did a few magazine covers. I remember doing the cover of uh, Native Magazine in Nashville. It was the, the indie rock musician Soccer Mommy for Native Magazine. And uh, I also shot the cover of She Shreds Magazine. That was uh, Melody Faye oh, in Nashville nice. as well. Um, and so when I started shooting magazine covers, that was when I started feeling like I could do this as a profession. And I remember sending some of my first invoices uh, and I had never heard of an invoice before. And, you know, I started getting into, um, you know, doing that and, you know, receiving, uh, you know, doing W-9s and things like that after a job. Uh, So that's when it really started to feel like a career path was when I started getting things published on sites like Pitchfork. I had some things published in uh, NPR. I remember that was uh, very early on. Um, I worked with the musician Erin Ray, and she was getting a lot of press for her music, and I was getting a lot of my images published in uh, different online magazines. And I remember when I did my first story for a major publication, The New Yorker, in 2019, uh, I went to New York to take photos of uh, Thundercat at the the Blue Note, the, the jazz place in New, in New York. So that that was a moment that was really huge for me. I, I love Thundercat, and of course I love the New Yorker as well. And so I felt that that was a pivotal moment for me to be able to say that, you know, my work's in the New Yorker, you know, I'm doing a more, you know, legitimate high-profile job, and so I, I, I felt really good about that. Uh, and then from there, I started meeting editors and uh, doing more work for different publications like Time, and I recently did a story for the New York Times, and it was in the print for the first time. So uh, that was really exciting as well. I, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's definitely important to meet editors as a photographer to get your work and your name out there, and Definitely very recently, I've, I've started to feel like I'm building a circle of, of connections that are really important to me in the industry. And I'm, I'm really excited for uh, the future ahead, too. Yeah, I feel like when we first start, and I say we as like the collective we of artists, when we first start, it's 
easy to think like, I'm just going to make my work, I'm going to do my art, whatever. But so much of it is about relationship building, collaboration, and like, I don't know, someone you met years ago, maybe someone you collaborate years or collaborate with years from now. And, you know, a client that you, you know, maybe like such a dream client early on, and you're like, I could never work with them. They're so big. They may become one of your regulars. Like you just, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I definitely uh, have some dream clients and it doesn't seem so intimidating now. I've, I've worked with some people that uh, I really admire and it's, it's always a fun thing to do to, to meet someone that you admire and get to work with them. When I moved to Philadelphia, I actually got a job shooting a cookbook. I shot a cookbook wow. for Questlove. It's called Mixtape Potluck. Oh, my God. And that was one of my first <laughs> yes. jobs in Philly was shooting this cookbook. And I had, I had mm-hmm. no experience with food. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, so it, it, was, uh, it was definitely an interesting experience because uh, I, I love working with people. Uh, I like capturing the human drama. So I don't really do a lot of like still lifes or even landscapes. Um, so I thought that it was really interesting uh, that I got chosen to to shoot the, the food pictures for this cookbook. Um, it did have a music element to it, though. Uh, since it was called Mixtape Potluck, it would, the idea was to create a list of recipes uh, and a playlist to go along with the recipes uh, of different entertainers and, uh, and chefs and cooks. And it was all kind of like centered around music. Um, and so I felt like since it had that music element, uh, it was related to my other work. Uh, so I was, I, I, I had a really good time doing that. I, I think that it was uh, a great way to introduce myself to, to Philly. Yeah. Were you pretty proactive in the beginning about, um, seeking out some of these relationships with editors or submitting your work to publications? Or did you feel like some of these invitations started to come about just more organically through having your work published um, in connection with other musicians? Um, like, I'm curious how those things started to snowball for you. Yeah, so um, in the beginning, I, and I'm, I've never really been too proactive about sending cold emails. I've sent a few uh, to photographers that I admire to just try to assist. I met the photographer Dominique, uh, Dominic Terambaski, uh, through a cold email, I told him that I admired his work and that I wanted to assist him in New York. Uh, and he responded to me and we became friends and I went up and assisted him on some personal work. And that's really one of the only times that I can remember a cold email uh, working out in that way. And um, well, actually, I met John Key through a cold email as well. So those are the two times that my cold emails worked you know, in terms of connecting with people. But I, I don't do that often. I don't send out a lot of cold emails. I really just kind of meet people organically. And through getting my work published, my name gets out there and people will flag my work. I think Instagram is a really powerful tool because editors can follow you and they can save your work. And um, I guess they just kind of, you know, share amongst each other the list of photographers that they're interested in. But I, I've, I haven't spent a lot of time sending my work out to different people to, to try to get 
a bunch of jobs. I, I, I do it lightly. Um, I don't, I don't do it obsessively like every day or, or even every week, but yeah, I think it just kind of happens naturally over time. You know, your work gets out there, people see it and, you know, your name gets passed around. So it, it, uh, it happens naturally. I don't really have like clear, you know, sometimes people ask me for advice and ask me, you know, how I get jobs and things like that. Um, just like younger photographers and, uh, knowing editors is the biggest thing. And I would say just, you know, following them on Instagram, keeping up and engaging in with what they post is a good idea. And, um, just kind of like staying in the loop. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. A lot of the stories you've told too about opportunities or projects that have come about seem to really originate in community and or some type of collaboration, like just being involved and being a part of a local scene or reaching out to people you admire, finding ways to work together. And so I love that. Even the story of the few kind of cold emails that you've sent, just expressing appreciation. I think sometimes um, people forget to do that. It's like just the idea that you could even reach out to an artist you admire and let them know what their work means to you because you never know where those things are gonna lead. So. Um, yeah, it's it's great to hear how, you know, although these things have come about organically, maybe you can start to trace back some of the connections. Like, you're not really sure how you were hired for this cookbook project, but there's a music connection. So, you know, clearly it has something to do with the work that you were doing leading up to it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's so funny how that happened. I, I actually brought uh, a book that I was working on at the time, uh, Pom Poms is a collection of music photography that I shot in Nashville. Uh, and I continued that work in Philadelphia too. I'm working on volume two. Um, so I brought a mock-up of that book to one of the meetings for the cookbook job. And, and they liked the books. They liked how I worked with people and, and the different color palettes throughout the book and the compositions. And so, uh, yeah, investing in that book and printing my work, I, that was very important to me. Um, it still is. Printing my work is, is one of the most important things that I can do because it, it brings the work off the screen. There's something that happens when you materialize the work and you can like see it on your walls or like make a mess out of the work, you know, in an office and like lay the pictures out on a desk. Um, there's something about bringing the work into the real world that adds uh, a natural, tangible element to it. And I feel like that was really important for me. And it was important for me to let clients see that, to see that, you know, I'm, I'm serious enough about taking the work off of the hard drive, off of my computer and uh, bringing it into reality, putting it into, into a box, bringing it out to the meetings and spreading it out on the table. Uh, that's something that I feel like photographers uh, shouldn't lose touch of in their careers. Yes, I love to hear about that because I think, I mean, I, a little background, I also uh, do photography, although I'm, I do it in a very personal sense. Like I'm not, I'm not making any money off of my photography, but uh, it's like one of my, my true loves of making art. And I also agree that like, I feel like it's so, it's such a different experience being able to hold something in your hand and being able to like feel the texture of the paper and being able to 
get really close to a piece and stand really far back from a piece and see it from different angles. And it's really, you just can't get that on a screen. And it's hard now, of course, as we say this in a time where it's it's really difficult to see art in person, but even like collecting art books, like just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's what I tell people about uh, my series, Figures of Color. The, the scale is what matters. Uh, what you're seeing on my Instagram feed and, and on my website even, um, it doesn't do justice to the real piece because they're, they're 60 by 40 inches. Um, and they're, they're in a wooden frame without glass. There's, there's nothing covering the, the paper. And so uh, the, the true impact of the work is in person where you can see it and there's that immediacy and you can almost touch the photograph and that to me is the the truth of the series and not, you know, what's on my Instagram feed. Yeah, that seems very connected to the um it being inspired by painting too, which is such a physical medium and something that you really have to experience in person too. Oh yeah. Um, this is kind of a shift. I just wanted to ask you more about your move to Philadelphia and what what brought you there and how did you make this transition to being in a new city? It was really scary because I had one friend, her name was CJ Harvey, and she's a music photographer. She told me about Philly because she had been there. She she lived in Philly at the time. And she told me that there is a close-knit community of musicians in Philly uh, in the underground music scene and that it would be an excellent subject for the second volume of my book, Pom Poms. And so that's really what inspired me to move to Philly was to embed myself into this music scene and uh, continue my work on this, uh, you know, uh, series of personal photographs about the music scene. And so uh, I felt very attracted to the close-knit dynamic in Philly. I, I, I visited in March of 2018 and I stayed at her place in Brewery Town, and I just kind of I, I got a feel for the city. I went to a show at Johnny Brenda's, and I just kind of got a taste for the city, and I loved it. The people are humble. It's it's very gritty here, which I love. It's it's a beautiful mood, and I wanted to do something that because I, I I don't like to work on commercial stuff that often. I like to do personal work, even though I'm a, a full-time freelance photographer and, and I do it for a living. Um, my primary focus is my personal work and getting my personal vision of the world out there and materializing that. So pretty much the, the, the biggest reason why I moved to Philadelphia was to, to shoot the music scene and to get to know the different artists in Philly and the underground music scene uh, specifically. And I, I've shot that entire project in black and white. In Nashville, I focus more on vibrant colors. Uh, and it's it's more like pastel-y. It's very similar to the work in Figures of Color. Very vibrant and saturated. Uh, because to me, Nashville was was very romantic. I was really inspired by romanticism while I was in Nashville. And I wanted to do something that was very like uh, dream pop, if I could compare the, the mood to music, to a type of music. Um, it was very jangly and, and, you know, like glistening and dreamy. Um, but in Philly, 
it was more rugged, it was more black and white, gritty, grainy, tougher, darker. Um, I remember going to shows in Philly and getting out of my Uber and just being in the complete darkness on like a pitch black street in Kensington and not even knowing where the show is and being afraid of getting to the show because I'm just like in this desolate land and I don't know which door to knock on. Um, <laughs> so that that's the kind of mood that I got, you know, from Philly initially um, when I moved here. And so I decided to, to, to go with the all black and white. I saw movies like Eraserhead by David Lynch and I know he was inspired by Philly to make that film and it's a it's a it's a nightmare of a film in a good way. I don't mean it's like a nightmare, but I mean like it the mood is like a very noir, like scary, beautifully horrific mood. And that's, you know, a little bit of what I was was feeling uh in in the underground music scene here in Philly. That definitely makes more sense now knowing your kind of influences and inspiration and like I'm I live in Baltimore so I I will go to shows in Philly a lot and I definitely recognize that vibe of like I think I'm at the venue I don't even know if this is a venue I think there's music in there yeah I'm I'm just gonna go for it I it kind of looks like a to-go place but there might also be a show inside I don't know yeah I I've literally I've had moments uh, where I would open the door slowly and just kind of peek my head inside. And then I'd see a, like a, a small, quiet crowd of stylish people and be like, oh, okay, this is the show. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. But I wanted to say in regard to pom-poms and the ways that you're photographing the different music scenes in a different way, I think that's so interesting. I mean, I don't know anything about the Nashville music scene, but from the way the photos look and the way you describe them, it really, like in your photos, I'm like, these photos could be from the 60s, from the 70s, from today, from tomorrow. Like they really feel like it's just uh, like capturing people in a very romantic way, enjoying this music scene. And I I mean, I don't know if yeah, I yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of it like incomplete thoughts, but yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I I totally get what you mean. Uh, in Nashville, it was it was glossier. Um, there's this element of you know people trying to make it in Music City and and have a name for themselves and be someone, and uh, so uh, to me, my vision of the city was, you know really vibrant in a way that I kind of felt like it was the vibe where you're just sort of like dressing up for an award show and you have on this like beautiful glittery outfit uh, and there's pinks and reds and like pastel greens. And of course, reality was different. This is my vision. There were plenty of shows in Nashville that were in, you know, dark basements, uh, you know, very gritty and underground. There, there are ways in which Nashville and Philly are similar, but my vision at the time uh, in Nashville in 2017 was showing this, this sort of dreamy world. And uh, it, it kind of, when I listen to the album, I Feel Alive by Tops, songs like Drowning in Paradise, uh, that's the kind of mood that I'm feeling when I'm looking through the Nashville work. 
this sort of like shiny, glistening, very bright, like overexposed mood. And transitioning from that and moving to Philly, I wanted to approach a similar sort of scene, but in a different way and to describe different feelings. And so I decided to switch to black and white and I also decided to use my flash less uh, because in Philly, uh, I mean, in Nashville, I would use my flash a lot, my on-camera flash. And so it, it ma I made these overexposed bright pictures and uh, it, it would flatten out the shapes uh, and make everything seem as if it was um, kind of like Egyptian friezes, the sort of like flatness of the people in the, in the, in the photographs. Um, but in Philly, there was more depth. There was more like natural highlights and shadows. Uh, I used darkness in a more creative way in Philly. And the dreaminess sort of subsided in Philly. I wanted to be more grounded. Um, I wanted it to be closer to reality. And I was also getting older too. So I was 21 when I started working on the series in Nashville. And I felt very naive. Um, I felt very enthusiastic at shows, very eager. I wanted everything to pop. I wanted everything to be super colorful um, and romantic. But when I got to Philly, uh, and, you know, I was getting more into my mid-20s and working odd jobs at coffee shops and things like that and trying to, you know, make ends meet and, you know, generally being sad at some points in my, my early days in Philly just from trying to survive, trying to survive as a young person in a new city all on my own. It took on a different mood. And I think the black and white helped me get across that message better of removing that flash, kind of shedding off some of that, uh, some of the naive feelings and um, moving more towards something with a deeper feeling and meaning and something with like texture. Um, I got really inspired by the, the mumblecore film movement actually. Um, so the mumblecore film movement, I don't know if you know, is, uh, mm -mm. It's a collection of films made by directors who were very early in their careers. Uh, they, they had very little resources, and so they had to use natural light and uh, shoot on location. And the cast were, were their friends, and the, the stories were very closely re related to their real personal lives. And so I got inspired heavily uh, by movies like Francis Ha, uh, Mutual Appreciation uh, by Andrew Wojcicki. Francis Ha was starring Greta Gerwig. And, uh, you know, films like The Color Wheel by Alex Ross Perry. These are films that affected me deeply when I moved to Philly. Not so much as, you know, they, they were black and white films, but the feeling that they communicated inspired me the most. You know, and, and that's the the most important thing that I would want to do with my work is to have it be felt. That's uh, the point that I'm at right now uh, in Philly. I just love how you describe the character of these two cities and how your style has also reflected that along with your own personal growth and evolution. And you've described yourself as being based both in New York and Philadelphia. 
And so I'm curious how you're splitting your time currently between the two and what is your relationship to those two places? Yeah, so New York has always been a special place to me. I went for the first time um, in my early 20s and uh, I've been going back and forth uh, ever since uh, between New York and Philly. And yeah, I'm I'm getting a sublet in New York in March and I'm going to be living there for the first time. And, uh, you know, I pretty much just I, I do some jobs in New York and then I'll stay for a few days and then I usually come back. I live with my girlfriend in Philly. And so uh, Philly is like my second home. I, I, I want to be here for a long period of time. And, you know, Philly is... Uh, is definitely one of my primary focuses. But I love going up to New York and, and seeing some friends and, you know, shooting behind the scenes on music video sets and uh, getting into different projects there. But, uh, yeah, I just kind of go back and forth. I, I've never spent more than two weeks there at a time in New York. But for the first time this year, I will be staying there for all of March. Um, so I'm super excited about that because I think that it would allow me to, um, you know, branch out creatively. And then once the, the, the sublet is up, I might come back or I might look for another sublet. Um, I'm not really sure, but I don't see myself living in New York permanently right now. I really do want to just go there to discover the, the underground scene, uh, in its current state there. And I want to work on um, the final book, uh, what will hopefully be the final book uh, in my Pom Pom series, uh, Pom Poms Volume 3. So um, that will be the third series and, you know, I'll make it a trilogy. And then, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to cap it off at that because part of the idea is to document my 20s, the entirety of my 20s. So... There's an essay at the end of Pom Poms Volume 1 that's titled 22. And, you know, that goes into all of my experiences in Nashville and what I was feeling, you know, you know why I was inspired to make the photographs uh, in Nashville. And it touches on some of the same things that I touch on here about, you know, feeling naive and feeling romantic and uh, things like that. Uh, and then in Philly, uh, the essay is titled 26. And so it goes, you know, again, deeper into those feelings that I had moving to Philly and, you know, all the experiences in the, in the underground scene and how I, you know, how I've felt as a person in their mid twenties, uh, and how I've developed and changed over time and my different interests in music that are ever evolving. Uh, so New York, to me, my vision looking ahead is to, to show my late twenties and that's what I'm looking forward to now is finishing off that series and creating a, a, a whole detailed picture of, of youth. Because it's really all about youth, uh, to put it simply. You know, I start the series at, at 21. I'm going to end the series 29. And, you know, if, if, if everything goes to plan. And, uh, yeah, I want this, this works to be about my 20s, and New York is very much a part of that. And I think that, you know, this is, this is the first time that I've had, like, this uh, clear of a plan for a book in the series. Because when I started out, I didn't really have that 
much of an idea of a book in mind. Um, I, I knew I wanted to make a book when I started the series, but I didn't have, the idea has evolved over time. And I've come up with ideas that now that I had no idea about, you know, years ago. So yeah, I, I, I definitely have more of a plan now, but there's, there's, never, there's never a plan on what goes in the book. I, I had the idea of the book, but the people that I meet and the relationships that I discover and the compositions that I make, I have no idea what's gonna be in the book. I just have this sort of outer idea, this concept of, of what I want it to be, but those, those details are mystery to me. And you know, there's no telling who I'll meet and what adventures I'll go on in New York. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I love how these books are like chronicling your evolution, but it also seems like these cities sort of signify different chapters in your own life. And it's been great to hear you talk about your moves from Nashville to Philly and New York and how all of those things have influenced you over time. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're definitely different chapters of my life. And I, I have, I, you know, I, I feel pretty... Um, you know, there, there's a bit of a, a mystery to it as well, because I don't know what's going to happen in, in the next few years. And so I'm all about just keeping my mind open and just being receptive of what's in front of me. But I definitely do see these three cities, these three major cities in the U.S. Um, as different chapters of my life. And, you know, going from, you know, being really young and, and excited and j almost jumping off the walls uh, and then, you know, moving and, and and calming down a bit and settling into a new city and finding a new uh, natural vision for the music scene. Um, and then, you know, now looking ahead to when I get older and become, you know, almost 30 and, uh, you know, moving along in my career and my profession, you know, not only with my personal work, but in the, the commercial world as well, you know, being a, a, a working photographer with some experience under my belt. It's all about just trying to figure out who I am as an artist. I, I think that's inherently what creating personal work is about, is just figuring out who you are and, and, and working on that along the way. You know, I've discovered recently that looking at things chronologically looking at my life, like taking a step back and trying to figure out what my life is about um, has helped me a lot as an artist. Yeah. You touched on this a little bit um, when talking about your transition to Philadelphia and the kind of inherent struggle with starting over in a new place and kind of doing whatever you need to make ends meet, whether it's working in coffee shops or, you know, taking on part-time gigs or freelance roles. Um, whereas now uh, you mentioned that you're a full-time freelance photographer, although it really sounds like these personal projects are a really big part of your work and driving, driving your work forward. And so I'm curious how you would describe the balance um, or how you're distributing your time between some of these more personal projects versus uh, the editorial or commercial work as a photographer. I think personal work can do a lot for a photographer and it's okay to have a day job. I've, I had a day job, uh, up until very recently. I, I worked for Warby Parker for almost two years in Philly. Uh, so, you know, I'd be selling glasses in center city 
and then working on my photography in the meantime. And when I first moved to Philly, gosh, I had so many different jobs. I, I used to dog walk. Yeah, same. I uh, worked at a record <laughs> store for a little bit. Dog sitting and dog walking <laughs> was like my, my forte in uh, Baltimore <laughs> yeah. before I moved to the West Coast. Yeah, I, I love dogs. I, I honestly loved that job. I, I thought that it was pretty fun. But yeah, I, I also did coffee too. I would actually I ride coffee. two city buses. I used to wake up at five o'clock in the morning, get on two city buses to go to the Navy Yard in Philadelphia and work at a coffee shop and like a hospital. It, it wasn't exactly a hospital. It was like a, it was a place where uh, sports players would go and get healed after an injury. So I would see like Eagles players walking around. It was called the Vinceria Institute. And oh. <laughs> I worked by myself at this counter serving coffee to the doctors who would work on these sports players. Uh, and it was one of the, the oddest jobs I've ever had because um, I opened and closed by myself. So I was completely alone. Uh, there were points where oh I didn't God. see my boss for like seven months because she would just order ma- the materials remotely. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, oh so my God. I would wow. listen to podcasts, uh, read a lot, and just kind of yeah. work this this coffee counter by myself. And I did that for like, I did that from like 2018 all the way up into the pandemic, when the pandemic started. And so, uh, yeah, and, and all the while shooting freelance gigs and working on my personal work. You know, that, that's the, the side that people don't see is the, the day job side. And, and, and I can understand why a lot of people would be a little bit embarrassed and not, you know, not want to tell people that they're like working in a retail store or something like that. But I think it's important to get that fact out there because that's, you know, that's real life. You know, people have to do what they have to do to make a living, and then they, they sort of find ways to, and they find time to, to make their art and, like, be who they really are. But, you know, you have to, you have to do things for money and to, you know, keep your, your head above water. Uh, and I, I, I definitely had some, some, some boring retail jobs. <laughs> uh, but it's okay. It's, it's, it's what you've got to do. And... Uh, yeah. I th- I think that uh there should definitely be more open conversation about uh you know young people who have to to work jobs you know in order to make their art. You know, they're still they're still artists. They're they're still um you know the the people that they that they are at their core, but you know, you have to you have to get your business done. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. And that's one of the one of our favorite things that we love talking about on the podcast is like, how did you support your art business while you built your art business? Because it really is something that takes so much time and experience and money. And most of us don't come from, you know, backgrounds where those are already readily available to us and we have to figure it out. And uh, as another artist that spent a lot of time working in coffee shops, I can confirm, I feel like when I was working in cafes, that was when I actually did most of my reading. And I, I think the, the years when I was a barista was when I did the most, of, <laughs> read the most books. Yeah. 
Uh, but it's it's a great job to support artists because you usually get like pretty limited hours and you know you can stack your shifts and then be like all right I'm gonna take four days off and just like paint or draw or take photos or whatever like they're usually good good and flexible oh yeah yeah it's it's a it's a great job to to have while you're trying to figure yourself out and you know I, I worked at a couple of coffee shops in Philly and I definitely feel like uh, those were times, you know, where I felt like, uh, you know, of course I wanted to work myself up and get, you know, get out of those jobs and spend more time on making art. But having jobs like that, you know, it was even, it was inspiring too, because it kind of like lights a fire under your ass because, you know, you're spending all this time at work and then when you get off, you're like, I, I have to do something creative. I have to work on this project. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't like succumb to all of these hours of just doing this job. You know, I've got to I've got to be myself. And so that that's what I felt when I was working at these coffee jobs and, you know, doing the dog walking. And I, I also worked at uh, different clothing stores in Philly, too. It was a way for me to get myself up and and work on who I want to be as an artist. Because I feel like if I had everything all at once, if I had all the money in the world and all the free time in the world, it wouldn't have gotten me to, you know, work as hard on my personal work and on my craft and things like that. Because uh, if if you have all the time and all the choices in the world, you can't, you know, there... I feel like being in the retail world has made me appreciate uh, what I really want to do in life and using my time efficiently to get to the place and the position I want to be. So now that I do have free time, I I know what I value and, you know, I know what kind of work that I value. And it's really important to me to, to focus on being a, an actively practicing artist because you know I I don't want to go back to spending, you know, 40, 50 hours a week on, you know, working for someone else. Um and uh I You don't want to go back to taking both those buses to <laughs> to work alone in that in that <laughs> like rehab hospital? Oh god, no. Oh my god. That I will not even if I'm super desperate, I will never go back to that job. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'll just have to file for unemployment. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think that uh, what really helps people too is getting that break. It's 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 all about knowing people and getting yourself into a community. And uh, I think artists getting a break, I think that's that's really what you need, honestly. If you get like a grant or something like that, there's different things that can change yeah. the course of your life and you really need other people too it's it's not just your own will and your own talent uh that will get you to that place and move the needle there really are like gatekeepers out there who can you know yes. choose to give you a grant or a fellowship or exhibit your work and it 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 puts you in that position where you don't have to be at that odd job or you get your name out there or get a bit of press and it, it just kind of takes you to the next level. And uh, since since I'm not, I've always felt a little bit curious about how much not having a degree is holding me back or even, even it like, is it even holding me back? 
I've been curious about that because, you know, I've applied for some fellowships and grants and, you know, I've been rejected for a lot of stuff. I've also won some things too, but I've always been curious about, you know, what school actually does for an artist. And I know that it's not necessary for everyone, but yeah, that's just, that, that's something that I think about too, because uh, getting a grant can really change someone's life, like seriously, like, or, or getting like a huge commission. Yes. Um, I was actually listening mm-hmm. to another one of your episodes and uh, there was a woman uh, who was talking about uh, getting this big commission for a painting and uh, she was able oh. to... Oh, it was me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was life-changing. It really... I, I think everything you're saying really resonates. And, you know, it's the product. Like, you're working for those things for years. And I appreciate how open you are about the variety of day jobs, too, because I think you know, everything you've done, you've touched, like between Amanda and I, you know, we've worked in coffee shops or been dog sitting Mm -hmm. and like worked all variety of day jobs. But up until last year, I was working in arts administration um, in higher ed full time. And uh, yeah, it really was that one big painting commission that allowed me to finally focus on my work. But yeah, I mean, I think those things do snowball and it's the product of years of relationship building. And so it's interesting, though, because I feel like one of the takeaways um, that you know people describe coming out of uh, like undergrad or grad school is a community of artists and peers that they can move forward with. And it seems like even though maybe you didn't get that from the academic world, like you're very much involved in the music scene and in other types of communities that have really moved your career forward, too. So I, I feel like you've sort of found you know, these things that uh, like a graduate degree or undergraduate degree might provide like community or knowledge or the time and space to focus on your work, you know, you've been able to carve that out in other ways. Yeah. And a degree also provides credibility too. I have felt, you know, honestly, when I do some applications and I'm talking about some like art theory or a film movement or something that has inspired me uh, and, you know, I'm really, you know, you know, just talking about different theories and uh, in methods of working. I don't have a degree to back up that studying. These are things that I've discovered at the library through reading and, you know, through discovering different artists. Uh, and I do feel like a degree gives you that bit of credibility to, you know, you can say I'm, you know, studied in this field and, you know, I've been formerly, you know, prepared in this medium uh, at this institution. And I feel like having that could definitely help on some uh, fellowship and grant applications. But you don't have to be in school to be curious. I, I've, I've been a very curious person over yes. the past few years. And, and I've tried to learn about uh, a variety of different things uh, from, you know, from uh, different art movements. And that all comes from my own independent study. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, I I feel like um, you can definitely get yourself out there and show your work and get those big commissions without having a degree. I feel like there's alternative positions such as being a curator at a museum or maybe even like a photo editor at a magazine that would probably require more of an academic resume. 
but I, I don't see myself being, I don't see myself like working for a museum or like being like a professor or anything like that. I'm focused solely right now on getting my personal work out there and materializing my vision and, and learning about different methods along the way. And, you know, things may change. You know, I might think about teaching at some point when I get older uh, or even going back to school. I've become interested in different specialized workshops. So uh, there, there's definitely more time for me to get a little bit more in the academic world. Uh, but I can always appreciate an artist who's really open about forging a path that's not as uh, formal and traditional. Uh, there's poets like the, the poet Anne Sexton. She um, is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. She wrote a book called Live or Die in the 1960s, and she's a part of that confessional poetry movement. And her story is so inspiring because up until she was 29, she was just like a housewife. And uh, she even opens up in interviews about, you know, feeling kind of like, feeling like she couldn't do anything, feeling incapable, uh, you know, feeling dumb. And then she was talking to her therapist once uh, when she was 29 and her therapist suggested poetry and creative writing. And so she started uh, mm. doing this, uh, she started getting into this creative world and writing poetry. And now she's like this renowned poet uh, from the confessional movement. And she, she won all these prizes and she got these fellowships uh, and she's never had a degree. Um, she's only studied at Boston in, um, I forget which, which university it was, but she studied uh, with Robert Lowell and Sylvia Plath at a university in Boston. And, you know, she did this really intense workshop and uh, that's how she got her education. And that's how she, you know, found a community to fine tune her skills. And I was really inspired by that. I, I, I love hearing about artists who take the unconventional route and they find a way of learning that, that isn't, uh, that, you know, doesn't put them in student loan debt. So, um, yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I loved that. I mean, everything that you um, said, Nicole and I, I feel like it's so important to us to show that one can be an artist in a wide array of ways and that background and education, they, they can matter, but I think it's how you approach your life and your practice. And I think staying curious is such an important message and like self-education. And I, I don't even know. I mean, I had a thought and then I sort of lost it in my tangent, but there is, uh, there is something that you had said, maybe Nicole, I'll let you, I'll let you say what you were going to say. <laughs> oh, well, I just to echo what you were saying. I mean, yeah, we love that spirit and there really is no one way to be an artist. So I think even this idea that there are conventional routes to follow, I mean, yes, there are pathways, um, or like you said, there there are these gatekeepers that can exist, whether through the academic world or other institutions, you know, fellowships available, things like that. But I mean, for every artist that has gone through that route, there are a dozen other that have found their own way and created their own path. And so I think just that reminder that you know, everyone's on their own timeline too. I I just feel like, you know, we're we're both in our early 30s, and uh, we relate to this sort of sense of urgency or maybe this self-imposed pressure that can 
uh, creep in when you're starting out as an emerging artist that everything has to happen really fast. And the truth is that, you know, you, you may not have even uh, like made the connection that's going to inform your work decades in the future, or you haven't yet made that body of work that's going to become the most important to you. I mean, the arc of our life is, uh, who knows like how, how long we have, you know, but I just think this idea that we're all in this constant process of evolution and it's it's only in hindsight that you can really connect the dots and see how things you know how what directions your your life has taken but i think just getting some perspective and you know seeking out other examples right of artists that have made their own way uh, is really important because it's easy to lose sight of that too when you're in the moment and you're working the day job and you're getting on the bus every day at 5 a.m that it's like, is this it? Like, I don't know. Is it going to happen for me? And like, how am I going to move forward? And so I just think remembering that, you know, like we're all in our own timeline and there are infinite ways to build a life as an artist and sort of find success, whatever that means for you. And yeah, I love the way that you speak about all those things. Oh, yeah. I uh, I definitely had a lot of moments, you know, taking those two buses to the coffee shop uh, spending seven hours doing a shift and just thinking like, am I an artist? Am I really doing what I want to do? Am I getting my work out there? Uh, and so there, there was, there was a lot of moments like that. And I feel like what a lot of people need to hear is that yes, they are an artist and you are making work. This is just something that you're doing right now to, to make a living your, your work is building up whether you know it or not or, or whether it feels like it's building up or not because, you know, like you mentioned before, uh, there is this very intense sense of urgency, especially now uh, in today's world. Uh, and I think it's because of social media. Uh, I honestly think that it's because of the internet and social media. Uh, and here's another thing that I... I thought about, you know, I was telling my friends that I think now we have such quick access to someone's entire trajectory. Like if you think about all of the artists that you've learned about and like all of the Wikipedia pages you've read, uh, I think that that's more intense now than ever to see how someone life's, to see how, how someone's entire life goes and see someone's complete list of accomplishments. And, you know, I see people that are are much older, like in their 60s and 70s, and they have this whole career behind them. And they have all these books out and all these, you know, articles published about their work. Uh, I've seen, you know, countless Wikipedia pages and and biographies about a successful artist. And it really makes you feel like you have to have those things now. Uh, I have to have that book out now and I have to have all these accolades and I have to have, you know, <laughs> you know, I was thinking earlier when you were reading my bio, I, I think I need to shorten the list of select publications on my website because <laughs> when you were reading it, it was like a long breath of like one one publication after another and it kind of like made me think about that you know sort of urgency that I've had throughout my life of getting my work and and this and that and and uh you know trying to make the list long 
of, uh, <laughs> you know, different publications, uh, you know, with my work, but I, you know, I feel like that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, but you did it, so you're just stating facts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I feel like I feel like that sort of thing doesn't really. I I think it matters to get to get like your personal vision across. What su- success to me isn't being recognized by a million different publications. Uh, you know that's nice, and it like helps you get more jobs. And like, and like I, of course, I want to stay busy, and I, I, I do want to do stories for different magazines. But success to me isn't getting your work uh, in every single important uh, magazine or newspaper, but getting a vision across and communicating a human feeling and uh, communicating a human experience in the most honest and uh, personal way possible. And I feel like, I feel like if, if I can do that successfully, then it's, it's a success, whether or not I have money or not. Uh, if I'm, if I'm never a rich artist, if I, you know, never have my own studio, uh, with a bunch of different, you know, people working for me and like this large business, I would be happy with just making an impact through monographs or through uh, a powerful exhibition. I feel like the, the different institutions that, that give you recognition is, is it's, it's nice. It, it can be validating, but it's, it's, uh, it, it doesn't last, you know, the validation feeling, it doesn't last super long. You know, you'll feel good for a couple of days. But to me, the, the most valuable part of uh, being in photography and, and working as an artist is communicating that human feeling even to a small crowd. You know, I don't have to have all the followers in the world. Um, I'm totally happy with communicating something that's really resonant with other people. And so that's definitely where where most of my attention lies. Yeah, I was, I was going to say before where I lost my train of thought, and this is like a cutback and then I'll cut back again. I'm just all over the place. <laughs> but I was going to say one of the reasons Nicole and I decided to start the podcast was because we both felt like there was such a huge gap in our education immediately after finishing art school where we were kind of like, okay, we're done. And now I have this paper that was extremely expensive and I have no idea what to do with it or how to apply it. And it is so it's so stupid that that extremely expensive piece of paper is often the like the tool of gatekeepers of like nope you can't do this because you don't have this sorry this is you just you got to buy into the club to be a part of it and I think it's so important to recognize that being an artist it's very much about pursuing your own personal definition of success and not focusing on what other people are doing what other people's careers look like, what other people's education backgrounds look like. It's like, what do you need? What do you want out of your life, out of your work? How do you want to be able to do that? How do you want to be able to apply it? And focusing on that. And I, I mean, everything that you're saying is so brilliant. And I'm really excited to look back on like all of the references that you've made in the episode, because there are so many films I haven't seen. I mean, Eraserhead, I don't know if I can ever watch again. Uh, yeah. I feel like it's just burned into my brain <laughs> yeah. from when I first saw it. Um, 
But I, I've just really appreciated this conversation. And there was another thing that you had said, like way earlier in the conversation about your approach to early work and kind of the playful naivety of early artists work. And there was this, I'll make a music reference, but there was this episode of the podcast Song Exploder I had listened to forever ago that was with the, um, the band American Football. And they were talking about this album that they had that became kind of like a cult classic. And they basically were like, I think the music was really good because no one taught us how to play our instruments. So we were technically playing them wrong, but because we were approaching them with our own complete naive sense of like, here's what I want to do with it. It made them create such incredibly unique music and it, you know, became something more than they expected it. And I, I appreciate that that's also reflected in your work and your experience. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, uh, I definitely feel like knowing what you value is really important. And, you know, for some people, they, they want to, they just want to make a living as a photographer, which is okay. And, you know, you, you want to, um, you know, make enough money to, to feel successful and to, you know, have all the things that you want, like a studio and all of that stuff. I think it's definitely okay to just be a working photographer and work in the commercial world. Uh, you know, if that's something that you do, if that's something that you value, uh, if, if you value just being a, a really active, busy photographer with like a large, with the biggest rate, you know, that that's a way of working that's that's a way of approaching it um but for me i'm definitely not guided by uh making the most money possible and i feel like that probably doesn't make me the most savvy businessman because i i'm not really interested in having like a commercial agent and doing a bunch of product photography to you know uh, make enough money to have all the equipment. Uh, my equipment is very light. Uh, I I hardly have anything really, but uh, getting that personal vision across and having a personal point of view and materializing that in a book or an exhibition is what's most important to me, even if it means that I don't get all of the jobs that I want or don't, you know, make as much money as the next photographer. It's, it's super important to me to uh, be understood in a way that, like if I go in a library and I read someone's forward in a book and, uh, you know, for example, The Decisive Moment by Henri Cartier-Bresson, uh, he has a philosophy to his work and it gets across his personal vision and that's something that I really respect and I love. And it took him a long time. It took him, I think, like 20 or 23 years before he made his first book. He had been shooting for, you know, like two decades uh, and, uh, and building up this work over time. And, you know, doing like journalistic stories, too, and, and you know, being a working photographer. But but that's the kind of that's the kind of path that I like. You know, it's uh, you can be a working photographer but your personal philosophy uh, and understanding of your work, thus, you know, understanding yourself a little bit more is something that I really try to try to master. And, you know, I'm, I'm no expert. Uh, I always consider myself a student 
uh, and I'm always learning different things, uh, even from people who are younger than me uh, and just starting out. Uh, I think that there's lots of opportunities to learn from different people who are at different levels. I feel like even if, even when I'm in a much older photographer and I have a lot of experience behind me, I would totally be open to uh, you know learning from a new young artist. Uh, I think that that's important too to to stay open to learning and to consider yourself a student because I I, I would never want people to think that I believe that I have it all figured out <laughs> because I I, I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, I like to follow my intuition and, uh, you know, whatever that is, I feel like if I, if I follow my intuition, then my work is more honest. And that's, that's all I could ever strive for, really. You know, not having, I don't have to have the most expensive print or uh, make the most in a year, but putting forth honest work and, and having people understand that. Um, is something that I, I, I truly value. I mean, I guess I would just ask uh, Marcus if there's anything that we uh, haven't talked about yet that you would want to share. I guess I could talk about poetry a little bit more because I've gotten really uh, into poetry, specifically the uh, the confessional poetry. Uh, this like really intense, intensely personal work coming from. Uh, Anne Sexton, uh, Sylvia Plath, and Robert Lowell. I'm not a poetry expert, and I haven't read like all of the classics all the way through. I'm not like a, a super knowledgeable about all different types of poetry, uh, and I don't really write poetry myself. I don't consider myself a serious writer, but there's something that is really inspiring about the the work of Anne Sexton, especially her book *Live or Die*. And it's not only that that she's a a self taught self taught artist, but the her subjects of you know about death and religion and being a, a mom and talking about all these things that were taboo at the time in the sixties and talking about her marriage and uh, even menstruation. She has a, a poem that's titled "Menstruation at 40. Uh, and these are things that were uh, really uh, radical to talk about in the in the 1960s as a woman. And I feel like that that energy, that attitude to to open up about uh, these uh, like harshly personal topics and putting her heart on the page and not really holding back is a sort of energy that I've been inspired by because, you know, she's obviously not writing for the paycheck, you know. She's not writing to get like a commercial job or anything like that. She is writing about the human experience. She's, you know, taking a brush of life and putting that out there. And I feel like that's that's inspired me as a photographer. Uh, it helps me keep a focus that's uh, really honest and true to who I am because, you know, and, and there's something about like the DIY music scene that has helped me not be so concerned about being commercial. I'm even like really open about where I exhibit my photography. Uh, I had an exhibition uh, just at a house in Nashville and it was like a solo exhibition uh, and it was all my my work uh, from the music scene in 2017. 
I feel like doing things like that, I'm, I'm still open to stuff like that, even though I have more experience and I've, I've shown uh, at places that are like more established, uh, at, you know, different galleries and such. Um, I would still do something like that because I, I value the immediacy and the intimacy that comes with showing work on like a smaller scale and, and, and getting, it, getting it out to people who aren't exactly like uh, people who are in the art world. So uh, I feel like I'm going on a, a little bit of a tangent, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we've hashed it out. No, well, what you're saying reminds me yeah, I'm glad that you that you brought this up. Though this feels like a really um, beautiful note to end on because it kind of sums up your whole ethos or philosophy around art making, and I feel like that's what we're really talking about here. You know, what what you're saying reminds me of something that uh, Seth Godin talks about in the practice, which is that just that art should have a higher calling than to serve capitalism. Like art's purpose is not to be purely commercial, but we still live in a capitalist society. So these are factors and things that we have to contend with. And, you know, we might have to do commercial work to make a living, but that the higher purpose of art is to make an impact. And I think that's what you're talking about is what you're, you know, the the driver, the motivation behind it. And so for as much as our conversations revolve around the practical and the how-to and, you know, how are you making ends meet or navigating your career I think you know staying grounded and more importantly like staying rooted in the what's behind that and um, I love how you talk about that and you know these influence of poetry and all these other forms of art making yeah yeah I think that that's uh I I totally agree with what you just said making an impact uh is uh the most important thing and I I feel like not making work to serve capitalism, making a human impact, even even going against methods to become more popular. Because sometimes people conflate the urgency to become as popular as possible with making an impact. And one thing that I've learned, especially uh, during this pandemic and like during quarantine and everything, is that you can make an impact on a really small level. You can communicate your most honest feelings with even just a handful of people. And to me, uh, that's enough. It doesn't have to, you know, I don't have to share my work with millions of people. Uh, that's great and everything, yeah. but my goal isn't to become uh, the most popular or the most written about or the most talked about, but having people understand what I felt you know, while making my work and uh, materializing my work. Um, and there's uh, there's one quote from a book that I've been reading recently. Uh, it's called uh, No Evil Star. And it's selected essays and interviews uh, in prose with, with Anne Sexton. And there's one really fascinating thing that she says about the purpose of making art. And... Um, I have it here, actually. I know we can edit this together. Um, I love the sound of the pages <laughs> turning. <though>. Thanks. <laughs> I know. Uh, we'll just leave this in as ASMR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm loving all of your literary recommendations. I cannot wait to dive into some Anne Sexton. I mean, I have, 
I have Sylvia Plath on my bookshelf and I haven't even read it, but I don't have Anne on there. And now I know I gotta add her. Yeah, Anne Sexton was her, her colleague, her contemporary. They uh, took the same workshop together with Robert Lowell. And after they got out of class, uh, they would get into their car uh, with their friend George and then they would go to the Ritz Hotel and drink martinis and talk about death together. <laughs> that sounds great too. <laughs> uh, it's, it's this really fascinating story. I, I'm totally obsessed with, uh, with that trio, the, the teacher and the two students uh, in confessional poetry. It's like a really fascinating thing to look into. That would be like our dream podcast scenario is like after every recording, we can just go to a fancy bar and drink martinis and keep talking about yeah. all the, the topics. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. So she says, she's actually quoting uh, Kafka. She said that this is what Kafka said about prose, uh, that a book should serve as the axe for the frozen sea within us. And then she goes on to say, and that's what I want from a poem. A poem should serve as the axe for the frozen sea within us. And that's what I want in my photography, for it to serve as the axe for the frozen sea within us. And that's like a really like poetic, dramatic way to me of just saying uh, that you should be able to express yourself and materialize your inner vision and, you know, to put out there your, pers- your, your unique perspective of the world. Uh, so that's what I think she was getting at there. And um, that's really inspiring to me because doing that, it doesn't have all to do with, with money or being popular or being commercial uh, or, you know, running a successful mega business. But, you know, putting out your inner vision is uh, important and making an impact that way. Oh, yes, I love it. Thank you for sharing that quote with us. And for sharing your approach to storytelling and telling your story. I have had a blast doing this interview and I look forward to like listening back and picking out different things that stick out to me when I hear it in in another time. Before we wrap it up, uh, can you let listeners know where they can find your work to to take a peek? Yeah, of course. Um, I have a website, it's uh, called marcusmaddox.co. And through there, you can find a link to my Instagram. Uh, My Instagram handle is uh, marcus.xoxo. And uh, yeah, that's where most of my work is right now. Excellent. And we'll include links with the show notes so that folks can just click right over and, and see what your work's all about. Cool. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you for having me on. I I really appreciate this. Uh, I I think that conversating is growing. So um, uh, this has been really cool. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this has been a brilliant conversation. I really appreciate your perspective. And I, I just look forward to seeing as your art career continues to grow and as your perspective continues to grow. So we look forward to following your career. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. 
Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, and if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. 